resiliency starts to apply more to security as well these days, and that's on the rise, than just saying, hey, do we have redundant power systems? Do we have a generator and a battery system and so forth to be able to withstand something? Technology is transforming how we think, how we lead, and how we win. From InterVision, this is Status Go, the show helping IT leaders move beyond the status quo, master their craft, and propel their IT vision. Welcome to Status Go. I'm your host, Jeff Tun. Resiliency, the capability to recover from difficulties. Nowhere is this more important than within IT. Downtime, whether caused by natural disasters, equipment failures, human error, or maliciously through cyber attacks, is what keeps IT leaders up at night. Our guest today is Chris Campbell. Chris is the Solutions Engineering Manager here at InterVision. He and his team specialize in architecting and implementing resiliency into our customer systems. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Hey, before we get into some of the topics that we wanted to talk about, why don't you tell our audience a little bit more about your background and what your team does here at InterVision? Sure. So, uh, God, I started working in IT about when uh, Windows 95 came out. It seemed like a, a good idea at the time <laughs> as there was a lot of momentum and uh, had a couple of small businesses, you know, managing law firms, dentists' offices, property managers, etc. in the early days. The beauty of that is you get the entire miniature data center experience all at the same time. You have to handle their wireless, their network, their servers, storage, etc. Active Directory, it goes on and on. And uh, it was a great foundation for a career in data center. Um, Around the mid-2000s, I became a defense consultant, started working with mainly the Navy and the Marine Corps, uh, eventually some Air Force as well, and Homeland Security. And we built systems for the data center, mainly implementation, greenfield, new data center builds that were uh, from small systems that would record calls and voice for uh, ship to shore to distributed DWDM networks across all of the Asia Pacific area, and uh, eventually became the network architect for the Marine Corps on their private cloud initiative to uh, build out the first DOD private cloud. And that was my last gig before coming over to InterVision to uh, join the pre-sale side of the house, where all that vast, broad expertise became really tangible to uh, an employer. For me to then do work looking at companies' IT systems, their needs, their demand, and having a deep knowledge of the field across the board and how technologies work together, how they didn't work together, and be able to then help provide guidance to my client base, help them choose the right products, the right services and solutions uh, that they'd be able to implement, manage, and have resiliency with without uh, maybe going down the rabbit hole of buying something that wouldn't necessarily fit into the fold that well for them. So Chris, that's a great uh, background and a great introduction to our topic today. We want to talk about resiliency, as you know, and why that is so important to our customers. So why don't you talk about why this is important to our listeners, what trends you are seeing that make it even more important today than uh, 
maybe back in the Windows 95 days or back in the dark <laughs> age uh, when I was just starting out. So what, what are the trends that you're seeing when it comes to resiliency? Well, it would appear that the risk is on the rise. Um, the cost of breaches are astronomical these days. The average cost is like $8 million of a cyber breach for a, a large enterprise, which is just astounding to me. And um, it takes months to fight a breach that generally is undetected. Uh, it could be tons of data being exfiltrated, whether that's on your customers, your employees, or your, your IP that your company is making its margins and profit on. And then the, ultimately the need for uptime is more and more prevalent than it's ever been with people being able to work remotely, working in all time zones, distributed workforce across multiple countries and so forth. The, the work model isn't necessarily the nine to five people in the desks at the office any longer. And therefore, taking outage windows or having downtime that only affects you during an eight hour window of the day is really gone. People are shopping from their phones, sitting on airplanes and you know, from anywhere in the world at any given time, whether you have an e-commerce website, whether you're providing legal services or even manufacturing tech, it, uh, it's a global landscape these days. So we see that there's not as much availability to have an outage without extreme cost. There's tons of different kinds of disasters these days. A lot of statistics we've seen still point to about 80% of that being either natural disaster, fire, flood, telco failures, systems failures, and probably 20, 25% coming in with the, the cybersecurity side of things. So resiliency starts to apply more to security as well these days, and that's on the rise, than just saying, hey, do we have redundant power systems? Do we have a generator and a battery system and so forth to be able to withstand something? You bring up a great point because for many, many years, when you talked about IT resiliency or even ITDR, it was really just focused on those exactly. physical, natural disasters. Now we're starting to see a trend towards this balanced approach, if you will. You've got to protect the perimeter, protect the endpoint, but you also have to be able to recover. I've heard you speak about this before. And so can you talk a little bit about why that balanced approach is important to our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this brings up a great example, actually. I was doing a IT resiliency um, presentation and one of the people that was in the room was from a very large law firm out here in the Pacific Northwest. And he told us a story about one time when there was a, a fire in the power room of their data center. And this was a massive impact. It was a huge data center with dozens of, of very large customers with big racks. It was colo space. And the power provider said, oh, we'll have this fixed in less than four hours. And these guys all looked at each other and said, wow, well, that's a long time in the middle of the day. Um, you know, should we execute our DR strategy? And they all looked at each other and were like, well, we're not so sure how that's going to go. Um, you know, like we, we've got a playbook <laughs> yeah. kind of, we've, we've done some testing here and there, but we haven't actually done a failover and a failback because there's risk when 
you know, you try to transition from one data center to another by certain applications and you've got to calculate out what your acceptable loss would be of data or your acceptable time that you'd have to then recover. Uh, RPO and RTO is what I'm referencing there. So four hours goes by and then they get this, you know, another hour and then another two hours. Well, this goes on for two days. And hindsight, obviously being 2020, if they had executed DR, even if it had gone terribly, they would have been better off than sitting there saying, oh, it's only a couple of hours. It's only a couple of hours. So having that resilient plan, being ready and being confident and being able to execute without the what's the cost going to be calculation coming into it, because you already know and you're able to tackle that with certainty versus the uncertainty of a service provider giving you some rough number of how they're going to solve an unknown problem uh, becomes a far better path to take with regards to we can execute, we can strategize, we can plan, and therefore I can deliver to the executives in my company or to our shareholders real numbers, tangible data about the impact and the recovery versus trying to point fingers externally and ultimately being you know, in somebody else's control over your, your IT systems. So that story kind of brings me back to the why resiliency matters so much. It could be anything from things outside of our control that are telco and power related, natural disasters, you know, here on the West Coast, whether it's earthquakes um, or you're in Southern Florida where they somehow still build data centers um, and there's hurricanes right. and so forth. There's, there's so many variables that are outside of our control. And then when we talk about security and ransomware, and crypto jackers and all these other things that can compromise our data and take it captive, companies end up paying ransoms only to then be perfectly positioned at the top of those hackers lists of the place they're going to attack again in a couple months. Come back again. That's right. Yeah. That, um, you know, now, now we start looking at, at DR and backup and resiliency, and it becomes this amazingly powerful thing to say, we don't need that data that got encrypted. We've got another set here. We manage the keys externally. It's proprietary from the way that we manage the rest of our data encryption. We know that anything that was compromised over there is safe over here. We know exactly how long it's going to take to fail over to an active system, to rehydrate from backup, to trust our replication was accurate to a certain date where we've hopefully implemented logging software and can tell when the compromise occurred and have that ability to not pay ransomware, to reinstantiate your data elsewhere, purge and clean your primary environment and get back to full operations. So Chris, let's let's dig a little deeper. When we when we talk about resiliency, we're really talking, as we talked earlier in the in the show, about preventative measures, restorative measures. So your background can give some great insight into the preventative measures. What does a well-rounded preventative program look like these days? Well, that's a ever-changing landscape, Jeff. Um, <laughs> yes, it is. You know, it used to be we had a perimeter and we kept our data inside and our employees sat on our network. But as SaaS and cloud adoption is absolutely rampant, um, the perimeter has become obscured. And now we're seeing software, firewall, VPN, endpoint, and proxy that's distributed uh, around the world for users to be able to access the same policy as if they were on the network 
or connected to a VPN back to headquarters, but they're then able to go directly into those SaaS applications. So if you're in Europe, you're connecting to a local virtual VPN endpoint in Europe, you're hitting you know, Office 365 and Salesforce and other SaaS consumables in that local region. And that stops a lot of the, uh, the bottlenecking and hairpinning of traffic back to a VPN endpoint and out an internet circuit. So that's great. That's allowing us to downsize firewalls and internet circuits to headquarters while workload becomes more distributed. It's now closer to the users and policy can be enforced globally. We're seeing a lot of log aggregation, correlation, machine learning being applied so that logs from endpoints, from firewalls, from distributed proxy and VPN endpoints, from cloud portals, from you know, different kinds of cloud libraries where things are shared, are all now being able to gather those log data, report them into a security incident event manager, and begin to now run data against it to look for events that might be seemingly unimportant unless a whole bunch of them are happening together. And that correlation gives us the ability to see insight into malicious behavior, east-west movement, potential command and control traffic that otherwise might not have been detectable. So systems are getting a lot more advanced. And of course, there's so many vendors in the space and there's so many different ways to approach it that it can be daunting for an IT administrator or a CISO to come in and really evaluate what's going to fit best for their, their agency and their, uh, their company. And then uh, user behavioral analytics and baselining is another really hot one these days that helps a lot in uh, resiliency from the uh, preventative side of getting used to what a particular device or a user's behavioral pattern in. And if Bob walks into the Starbucks and gets on his hotspot every day and does a little work from eight to 10 o'clock while enjoying his two pump mocha. And then uh, <laughs> from there he commutes into the office. He spends some time there and this is his routine. While well, all of a sudden we're seeing Bob's asset or Bob's user account log in from southern florida or cuba or something <laughs> over in europe we can start to say okay well that's that's unusual and did it occur because bob's on vacation let's flag this did it occur because there's somebody that's you know credential theft has occurred and now is trying to access right, right, as right. bob from elsewhere so baselining uh, what a particular iot device user or asset generally does is actually um, been the most powerful thing I've seen in the last year towards determining if something out of the norm is happening where a user in a SOC isn't sitting there watching and reading through log and, you know, logs and, and saying, oh, why is Bob doing that? That's likely not going to happen. So the, the machine learning aspect of saying, here's a baseline of correlated behavior and here's tangents that are outside of normal. And if we see a certain amount of them, we're going to then flag right. that. We're going to send that over to somebody to review and then provide that timeline of how things altered and determine whether or not something's going on. It's been really helpful. And from there, you know, intrusion detection and next generation firewall, advanced next generation endpoint, you name it, um, security is getting more and more sophisticated uh, with hacking, getting more and more sophisticated by the day. Yeah, and what I've found is companies can spend exorbitant amounts of, of money, yet what keeps a lot of CIOs up at night is 
they're one user click away on an email from having something inside their systems that shouldn't be there. So talk Absolutely. to us a little bit about end user training and, and some of the techniques that you've seen to really drive home the point that security is everybody's problem. Yeah, security awareness is, is low generally, and individuals are easily duped into clicking and opening malicious things and emails on the web, and they take a rapid foothold inside the environment when they get in there if there is no segmentation for east-west traffic and, and so forth. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of great training programs out there, and every employee, even us security guys, hate when it comes around and we have to sit there and watch a video of how Sally found a USB key in the parking lot and, you know, and, and offered you to plug it into the, your, your computer because she thinks it's got a game on it. This is yeah. specifically from the DOD. I remember uh, doing it's, it's challenging. It's time away from work, but that training when coupled with the proper quizzing and metrics to report back on who the likely offenders are who clicks who's rushing through the training and not properly giving it the attention and then not answering the quiz questions accurately and then allowing that to create a new tailored training specific to the individual so it's not just a blanket approach it starts out as an umbrella approach to the organization and as you determine the security awareness abilities of your individual employees, the, the program tailors the training and the quizzing to each person has been really effective in helping what we call the human firewall be developed. Lots of great companies out there offer different kind of phishing training, different kind of safe browsing training. And ultimately, you know, even the best trained person could get an email that looks like it's from the CEO that's just got a hyphen added to an email address or something in there that's really obscure and make a mistake. So training right. is very helpful and it can probably reduce 70, 80 percent of the accidental phishing attacks that, that occur but you still have to be ready to protect your assets and to have those tools in place. And the problem with the tools, just like you said, is there's so many, there's so many choices that it, it, it turns into this point solution battle for companies right. where they bought 10 different things and they all have their own portal and their own login and they all have to be integrated into your single sign on and maintained and certificates maintained for logging into them and so forth. And then you've got, X amount of guys that are on your security team and for them to have enough TVs and enough monitors to have all these dashboards up and to know where to look for specific things and get reports out of all of them, the sprawl becomes unmanageable. I mean, considering it takes a minimum of seven people to effectively run a 24 by seven SOC operation at an absolute minimum. And that's if you've got a very coherent platform of tools that you're using to manage yeah. your IT security, you get you know, a couple people from the network team, a couple people from the directory services team that want different things. You've got SNMP and flow data. Maybe you're doing packet inspection, payload, you know, wire data inspection as well. And before you know it, there's so too many platforms to manage. The money becomes wasted. They're only used in triage versus proactively. And the sprawl becomes a cost center that's not delivering reward. So it really helps to have experienced folks, experienced consultants, uh, help you know, decisions be made to, to pick a platform, to pick things that integrate well together so that you can minimize the dashboards brawl and get a more effective approach by minimizing the tools you're using and the overlap between them to get the most effective manageability out of your tools that you've purchased, not necessarily just the most effective security. So we've all heard the statistics that some of these uh, cyber attacks 
lay dormant or they're in your system for 150, 180 days before you know they're there. What are some of the newer techniques or packages that help you detect when you've had a problem so you can go into your uh, response plan? Well, I mean, a lot of help from DNS security services these days, whether it be Cisco Umbrella or Palo Alto's new DNS security offering, um, help a lot. Every form of malware needs the ability to phone home to get instruction to really execute effectively to either exfiltrate data or to lock things down. So looking for real-time correlation to known bad IP addresses, IP addresses in ranges that are in nation states that you don't do business with, and inspecting DNS, which is like 80% of malicious programs use DNS to hide their their traffic. We, we allow port 53 to go out and reach DNS servers. And uh, if we're not inspecting the payload to determine what's on that port and protocol are really DNS queries, uh, then it's a very easy place to, uh, to have that start to happen. So those kinds of services are really helping a lot. And such things as sandboxing in the cloud, where if a, there's no signature known for a particular virus that we can upload an executable file, a Word document, a PDF, so forth, to a virtual environment in the cloud and run that program to determine whether it's benign or malicious. There's also a really helpful approach these days to making sure that those zero-day attacks that haven't yet been identified oh, by yeah. security uh, scientists and so forth are, are not wreaking havoc on your environment. And then from there, the monitoring, you know, it, it's a tough one. It's uh, the SIM and the user behavioral analytics that I was talking about are really helpful in looking for those abnormalities in the network. But ultimately, if they're clever enough, if they're persistent enough, if they're funded enough, and let's face it, this isn't uh, some guy in his basement in a hoodie anymore. It's full 30-story high-rises in Russia where everybody goes to work from 9 to 5 and their job is to hack other companies' data and, and steal it. And I'm not necessarily picking Russia out of a hat. There's lots of countries. But um, you know, this is a yeah. real profession uh, in parts of the world that we need to be aware of. And they're so sophisticated and capable that at this point you have to assume they're going to get in. And when they're in there, you're not going to know it. So by having that kind of correlated look at different logs, having segmentation between your different networks that you consider trusted, whether that's servers or finance or users, wireless, you know, just being able to inspect lateral movement, even web tier to database tier uh, inspection. It can go a long way in if something does get onto an asset, stopping that lateral spread so that it can get beyond the particular uh, artifact that got compromised. You were talking about these nation states, and I've got a friend of mine that was CIO for a uh, large defense contractor here in town, and they could literally set their watches by watching the event log spike when the workday started in this certain foreign country, <laughs> and it would drop off again when the end of the day hit. So you're right. I mean, it's it's a job. It's people coming to work and, and attacking you. I heard this guy from uh, the FBI a, a couple of years ago say something to the effect of, it's no longer if you get attacked or even when you get attacked, 
but when again. And you kind of mentioned that earlier in your example of a company paying a, a ransom. They're at the top of the list to get it. And now when businesses are running on digital systems and processes, it's even more important. So what measures can we take to ensure that we can recover and recover quickly in the event of either a cyber attack or a natural disaster or a sand failure, whatever the outage is, what do we do to recover quickly? Well, um, you know, restorative is kind of a cost versus speed um, calculation. And it's a little unfortunate that that's the case, but generally it, uh, from a cost to a business perspective, the faster that you want to be able to recover, the, the more expensive it is. And whether that's an active, active solution in multiple data centers, uh, down to whether you're using some sort of a replication software layer to move things over in increments that keep you within a few minutes of up to date and then can be turned on relatively quickly with some changes to DNS and so forth, uh, down to straight up backups. Uh, and luckily, we're not really using tape much anymore, but uh, restoring backups and rehydrating data and getting them in. So we find that the best approach to restorative is to, to take it per application. You know, a good example is Active Directory is something you're probably going to want Active Active on. If you have a DR environment and your users are going to use that in the event that you have a declaration and that you're going to fail systems over, well, if you don't have Active Directory over there, odds are the VPN portal that they're going to use to authenticate to those resilient systems that you've chosen to fail to isn't going to work because they're not going to be able to log in. So before you can even have access, you kind of need authentication. So that's one of those things that we say, hey, you know, active, active. This is one of those apps that you pay the money to have available in real time so that in the event that you need to fail over, you can your admins and your users will be able to authenticate and reach the other resources. And you can kind of work through an application by application basis with yeah, a company yeah. to say, what do we need? available immediately to ensure that our resiliency plan is going to be effective and then what's the window of time acceptable for our users to not be able to access that to then kind of judge on the cost basis what you're going to have a very fast recovery on and what you're allowed to take a little more time to recover as well as calculating how much staff you have and therefore if you did declare a dr event what level of yeah. effort it would take that staff and what's a tangible timeline for them to be able to tackle it, whether it's on hours, off hours, during a holiday, uh, et cetera. So it's really that this some of these newer technologies, you know, I, I mentioned at the top of the show that I started in IT back in the Stone Age and tape was our only option, but we also didn't have the same level of threats. Back then, your data center wasn't really connected to the outside world as much as it is now. But these replication technologies, and as you described, the active-active really have come to fruition, what, in the last five to six years. Uh, are you seeing advances in that to lower that cost to recover the, those systems faster? Yeah, I mean, public cloud being a perfect example of, um, it's a little more complicated Generally, let's say a hypervisor layer is VMware. That's probably 90% uh, of the market. And, uh, and it's not the same as what the AMI is in Amazon yeah. or an instance yeah. uh, is in Azure. So there's a conversion process that has to take place. But it allows systems that do have a little more leniency in the time to be replicated with software such as Zerto, which stands pretty uh, individually in the market. I haven't seen much that 
that is as flexible or as capable um, in that space of being able to convert uh, companies like Rubrik and, and Cohesity and Veeam are now catching up quickly with the ability to restore a backup to a cloud instance, convert power on and have that ready to run now in that new format in the hyperscale environment. Right. But companies that really are taking their DR seriously from a time perspective of critical assets really want a like-for-like -like environment. And that's where their DR environment is going to be another data center space that they're either owning or colo they're renting, or if they really want to um, ensure that their employees aren't getting bogged down and they're getting that absolute top-class service, a DR that's managed as a service by a third-party provider that's going to stand up in a top-tier data center, a VMware environment running on enterprise class hardware and storage and provide that to them to use so that it's a like for like environment, you know, tools like VMware's SRM, their site recovery manager, it's actually come a long way and is really capable in managing instances and doing almost real time failover from one site to another and helping quite a bit with that resiliency play as well as those managed service providers are capable of doing so much more from helping to write the playbooks and develop the DR strategy and then do the testing so that every quarter their, their team of IT people that are busy keeping the lights on, managing new initiatives, rolling out new technology, dealing with help desk tickets, whatever it may be that keeps them busy and they're 95% of their day job, aren't then bogged down with resiliency testing, DR planning and testing of new policies or changes in applications that have been deployed and verifying the functionality. And that's the biggest part is verifying functionality. True failover and failback functionality testing is rare unless uh, being handled by a team dedicated to DR as it just takes too much effort. Yep, that, that's very true, very true. So we've covered a tremendous amount of ground today from preventative, detection, restorative, our listeners out there are, are probably, some of them are scratching their heads and say, okay, where do I start? So, so where's a good place for uh, them to start to build uh, a reliable resiliency program? Um, where should they focus? Well, um, I would say that access control would probably be the place I would start on the preventative side of the house. Um, knowing who your users are and what they should access. You know, this goes back to how even secret clearances work in the federal side of the house. It's not necessarily your clearance level. Just because I hold a secret clearance or a top secret clearance doesn't necessarily need to know, mean that I need to know anything about some operation in Afghanistan or some IT system that, that's right. you know, completely separate from my job duties. So it's not only level of access, but it's a need to know. And identity access management yeah. for IAM becomes a really important part of understanding not only who, but what. Uh, and that granularity goes a long way in determining if Bob in sales, who is an account manager that's trying to you know, sell hockey pucks, because that's your business, doesn't need access to a database of financial records um, that are related to manufacturing. So just knowing what systems he should have access to and what privileges he has and assigning them on a, on a granular basis, uh, even to what is called a zero trust model, where we don't trust Bob except for what 
Bob is guaranteed access to for his job role and everything else he's blacklisted, right? So it's a whitelist only policy. That would probably be my starting point from a preventative. And there's tons of technologies out there and things that can help with user access management, privileged access management. And from there, single sign-on, multi-factor authentication, having not only who you are, what you know and what you have being ways you authenticate, what your account is, you know your password, but then you have a token, whether it's a soft token on your phone or a hard token like the old RSA keys that are still the most secure. Uh, or tertiary to that, you can have the text messaging, although text messaging is actually really easy to intercept. Um, you can spoof a phone number pretty easily to a carrier. So if somebody wanted to bypass two-factor authentication right. text messaging, there's a chance they could hijack a phone number and get that text message and uh, and use that to gain access. So I, I, it's better than not using multi-factor authentication by all means, but not ideal. Um, so that was just, you know, probably my starting point from preventative. From there, you can start to look at endpoint protection. You know, these assets, whether it's a mobile phone or a laptop, are, are often not inside the walls. Um, so protecting them with a next generation antivirus, anti-malware engine, maybe using a VPN portal or a cloud proxy to enforce policy on their browsing, regardless of whether they're on campus or off, uh, is a great way to start to extend your reach of protection beyond the walls of what you know your firewall can do for your local data. That's a great first step. I think that's actionable for our listeners to really look at their access control policies, what they're doing in that area, and take it from there. This has been fantastic, Chris. I always feel like uh, every time you and I have a conversation, I come away with two or three things that I've learned from that conversation at least. So I really want to thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. So thank you, Chris. Ah, always a pleasure, Jeff. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on as well. Um, this is a nice break from my usual routine to come in and talk about the things that I experience day to day that uh, often don't make it out of my head. Yep. I hear you, man. I hear you. To our listeners out there, if you have a question or want to learn more about some of the things that Chris talked about today, go to intervision.com. The show notes will provide links and contact information. This is Jeff Tun for Chris Campbell. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to the Status Go podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes or get more information at intervision.com. If you'd like to contribute to the conversation, find InterVision on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Thank you for listening. Until next time.